Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Hello, Brett here. Before we get to today's show, got a quick favor to ask of you. If you've been enjoying the Art of Manliness podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you so much. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member if you would think we'd get something out of it. Word of mouth is the primary way the Art of Manliness grows and spreads. So please share. Text a friend, send an email, do whatever, however you communicate. Tell them to check out a particular episode if you think they'd get something out of it. Thank you for continued support. And now on to the show. Okay, here and welcome to another episode of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, masculinity in America has a complex history. Big historical events and social movements like wars and the civil rights movement have all had an effect on shaping manliness in the United States. But an often overlooked social movement that had a profound effect on masculinity in America was the Freemason and Social Club movement. <clears throat> Are social groups like Freemasonry and the Oddfellows still relevant today in helping men become better men? Well, our guest today has written a book on this subject. His name is Robert Davis, and he's the author of the book, Understanding Manhood in America, Freemasonry's Enduring Path to the Mature Masculine. Robert is a Freemason and also the Executive Secretary of the Guthrie, Oklahoma Scottish Rite. In addition to understanding and writing Understanding Manhood in America, Robert has authored two other books on the subject of Freemasonry. Robert, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Brett. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so, Robert, tell us about this book. What inspired you to write Understanding Manhood in America? Well, I think, first of all, as a Freemason, the rituals and, and private ceremonies of this old, old fraternal society reflect the journey, a journey of man's life from childhood to mature masculinity. And I've been a Mason a long time, and I became increasingly concerned that with the growth of the fraternity, we have gotten so bogged down in the words of the rituals that sometimes we don't uh, integrate the meanings uh, behind the words. This journey, uh, of course, relates to the psychology of being, and I wanted to investigate how men have looked at the ideals of, of masculinity um, over the 300-year period of the American uh, landscape, and then how the fraternal movements have sort of moved in and out of the center of defining the ideals of masculinity for American males over this period of time. And I think just as importantly, you know, I'm a man, and I am becoming increasingly concerned with how our male gender is being 
sort of downplayed and overlooked as relevant in today's culture. And I think there is, in fact, a growing crisis in mature masculinity in our own time because of high mobility of men, high divorce rates, the lack of adequate models of mature men. There's really no cohesive institutional structure for actualizing the process of becoming and being men. At least I know of, of no other organization outside of Freemasonry itself that is focused on, on this very process. And it's pretty much, we live in a culture that's uh, pretty much every man for himself. Most men just kind of fall by the wayside with no clear idea of the broad and important goals of manly development. So I think that was my motivation for focusing on this journey uh, of being a man. Well, in your book, you kind of do a, um, I guess, a 300-year summary of American masculinity. And one of the things you mention, you kind of mention throughout the book, are these three archetypes of American masculinity. What are these archetypes, and can you describe them to us? Well, there's, of course, there are several types of archetypes which are related to the male gender. And depth psychologists like Freud and Jung have made us aware that deep within every man, of course, are are genetic blueprints, which kind of represent the hard wiring of the mature masculine soul. And these are sort of a map which identify the foundational characteristics of our nature. And generally, when we read books about uh, this kind of of archetypes, we're talking about hidden energies, and these are often categorized in a general way as the king, warrior, you know, magician, and, and lover kinds of, of archetypes. And, and I, I focus on, on those kinds of archetypes to a degree, but I was more interested in looking at the possibility that there had been broader cultural or societal archetypes where the social behavior of men can kind of be lumped into several broad categories or groups. And I discovered that the foundational archetypes of the American colonial era, uh, these were the archetypes that we actually inherited from our European forefathers, were usually listed as the genteel patriarch, and the the heroic artisan, and the self-made man. And so I made a decision in my book to try and to discover if these cultural archetypes of our founding fathers are, are still valid today and, and prevalent. The genteel patriarch is kind of comprised of the classical European definition of, of man. He was the dignified arist- aristocrat, I'm sorry. A man with an upper-class code of honor and a character of exquisite taste and refined sensibilities. He understood the nature of class. He was instructed as a young man into all of the uh, protocols and the etiquettes of, of becoming a gentleman. And so to the general patriarch, uh, manhood to him meant uh, property ownership, uh, the accumulation of wealth. And at the same time, sort of a benevolent patriarchal authority at home. He was responsible for providing for the moral instruction of his sons, uh, whereas his wife was responsible for taking care of the moral instructions of the daughters. Uh, he, He was very definitely the patriarch of his tribe. And at the same time, his world encompassed uh, compassion, kindness, uh, duty, 
and this was represented in this type of, of man through public philanthropy and usefulness. And probably in uh, the American founding era, the genteel patriarchs are best represented by George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Madison, you know, many of the, uh, uh, the signers of the Declaration of Independence and the, um, the constitutional authors. And these were probably the best known uh, models for the genteel patriarch. And then the second archetype that we inherited from Europe was the heroic artisan. The heroic artisan is, can trace his lineage uh, to the craft guilds of the Middle Ages. I was interested in the heroic artisan because uh, most scholars believe that Freemasonry itself evolved from the craft guilds of the Middle Ages. The idea about this individual and his character is that he was highly independent, he was virtuous and honest, uh, very formal in his relationships uh, with women, extraordinarily loyal to his male comrades, and whether he was the master of his family farm or uh, the proprietor in his urban shop, he was always the honest toiler, had a very strong work ethic, proud of his craftsmanship and self-reliance. And in our, in our colonial period, I think Paul Revere, the silversmith, probably represents, um, you know, the ideal of the heroic artisan. And I think the, the third in the trio of, of these male archetypes, uh, certainly at the end of the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century, was a self-made man. And this fellow derived his identity from his activities in the public sphere. It was measured by his own accumulation of wealth and status, but also by his geographic and social mobility. As far as uh, the great movement west uh, from the eastern seaboard, you know, we definitely uh, became a land of immigrants uh, with democratic ideals. And so the self-made man would be the kind of guy that, that we would uh, most affectionately believe seemed to be born with America. He was constantly on the go, he was competitive, he was restless, he was aggressive, he was chronically insecure, he was a man desperate to achieve some form of stability and masculine identity, and he very rarely stuck around long enough to, to set a founding of cultural roots. And, and so I think the best ideals of the self-made man uh, were the pioneers, um, Daniel Boone, uh, Davy Crockett, uh, guys like the explorers like uh, Lewis and, and Clark, and you know all of these men moved west, and there were there were all kinds of them: the farmers, the trappers, the adventurers, uh, the outlaws, the the ministers and the school teachers, uh, the soldiers and and the miners, and. Uh, the man who kind of became the national hero, the cultural icon uh, that would embed himself in the masculine mind, I think was the frontiersman. And, and so the self-made man uh, probably is the most enduring uh, of those three archetypes. And I was just curious if, um, if those archetypes are still around and what's going on with them. So. And are they still around? Yes, they are, but um, very, very difficult, a lot more difficult to define uh, today. 
and yet some of the characteristics are, are still there. The old icons of masculinity have become so clouded uh, in our own culture that you have to really dig through a lot of of, of murky stuff to identify those archetypes. So, Robert, in your book, you kind of talk about some of the, the cultural history of masculinity through in America, and kind of the conclusion that I got from it. And talking to you is kind of it kind of reinforces that conclusion that you know you feel that men are kind of lost in the wilderness when it comes to defining or achieving a mature mas- masculinity. Why? How did that happen? How did men become lost um, in this path to the mature masculine? Well, it. I think it largely is a 20th century uh, phenomena. I could make an argument that uh, in the 19th century, um, the Civil War uh, created some problems of loss of identity, but really uh, the 20th century is where I think uh, men became lost. And, and this, this happened for, because of several um, societal things that really were under nobody's control. Uh, and, and probably the first and most significant event that changed man's understanding of who he was was the Great Depression of the 1930s. Prior to the Depression of the 1930s, uh, we still pretty much lived in a patriarchal society. It was not unusual at all for there to be in each household, three or four generations of males. And so the connection that young men uh, had with the, with the elders within their own homes uh, gave them a sense of, of connectedness to, to manhood, uh, to maleness, and to the lessons that could be passed down from, from elder to, to son. And since there were multiple generations in these households, it pretty much uh, was clear that we lived in a patriarchal society. And the Depression, of course, moved everyone out of uh, the, the family home. You know, something like, uh, you know, one out of four men found them, themselves without job. Uh, a person could no longer, uh, especially in, in the Midwest, uh, make any money uh, or sustain his family at farming, and so we saw this huge out-migration that basically broke up the three or four uh, generation uh, male household. And when the men left the traditions of their of their childhood, uh, they never returned. They moved to the uh, the urban centers. Uh, they became, you know, they, they 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 became a part of an entirely different culture, and they had to literally reinvent themselves. And then a couple of other things happened at the same time. The Depression had such an, an enormous social impact on families that we, we actually became, to some extent, a welfare state. Uh, men no longer felt like they could control their own livelihood or their own uh, stability or preserve the um, you know the condition of their own family, and they started feeling more and more helpless. And the more helpless they felt, the more connected to uh, governmental relief agencies um, 
they became. So it kind of took away, I think, the the old model of, of strength and being able to work through all problems on your own as, as a man. And it happened to the entire culture at the same time. And then immediately following the Depression era, World War II came along. And the result of that, of course, was that men joined the military uh, by the tens of thousands and uh, they went overseas. Uh, they were they were away from home for a long enough period of time that that women started taking over traditional male jobs uh, back on the in the domestic uh, side of things. And so when the men returned after the war, uh, they found a new competition for jobs, and the competition for jobs was was. Um, was with their wives and the women in their communities and and in their cities and uh so they sort of started feeling this this loss of patriarchy that began at the at the first of the depression and then just seemed to sort of vanish during the recovery period after World War II and then of course in order to employ America after men came back from the war, the government created all kinds of, of programs uh, to keep people in working positions, and that's where a lot of our government agencies were established and, and the large uh, bureaucracies. And so men found themselves just moving into uh, salaried positions in large employee pools, uh, where they had absolutely no control or authority uh, over what happened with their lives. So it's and, kind of like uh, it's the the man in the gray flannel suit type of exactly okay. yeah. yeah and and so I think those two or uh, that particular era was an era that changed the the landscape of of American males uh, forever. And what about the uh, the Vietnam era, the baby boomers? I mean, what happened with masculinity there? It seems like a lot of change happened in that time period as well. Yes, it was actually the first generation of men who did not follow their fathers uh, into the American institutions uh, that their fathers believed in. The Vietnam era created, of course, a very strong counterculture uh, just because the the Vietnam War itself uh, did not follow the traditional icons of of warrior energy for the first time in the history of wars, uh, we were no longer engaged in the process of war like we had been in in World War one and World War two it It seemed to be more of a political war than a war of military strategy. It was hard to know if it was, you know, truly a world conflict. And it created a lot of conflicting uh, thoughts as to, you know, what we were doing and why we were doing it. And it damaged a lot of men. Uh, Of course, you know, the the war took place at the same time that uh, the drug culture grew by leaps and bounds uh, during that era. Again, we we sort of created a generation of men who chose to isolate themselves from the icons of masculinity of of their fathers and their grandfathers. And it especially affected Freemasonry. Uh, it was the first generation where men did not follow their fathers into the fraternity. It was the first time in the history of the fraternity 
that Freemasons had to look outside uh, their own families uh, for uh, a sustaining membership. And so, yeah, that was... Um, and it's not that, uh, and I'm not trying to bash the uh, the Vietnam era males. I, I'm just saying that the media uh, became so prominent in reflecting the events of our lives day in and day out that we quit paying attention uh, to ourselves and what we should be doing as as, as our own gender. Uh, to sort of get back on uh, the right track of, of uh, manly development just mm-hmm. didn't happen. Well, you talk a lot about, uh, so far, about some of the, I guess, negative aspects that, you know, the kind of negative cultural changes that happened in regards to masculinity. Were there any positive changes that happened in masculinity in America from, you know, the 19th century to today? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, there's, um, there's a lot of uh, positive things uh, going on uh, today, primarily with the uh, millennial generation, these young men that are just uh, coming out of college and getting into the workforce. But there's also some good things that came out of the uh, latter part of the of the 20th century. Uh, you know, consciousness move consciousness movements became. Uh, real popular and a growing kind of thing. Uh, spirituality uh, movements became very prominent. And while this may have impacted somewhat negatively the church's role in in providing spiritual uh, instruction for the male psyche, it has had the effect of men actually uh, stepping back and trying to decide for themselves, you know, who they are. They're trying to attach themselves uh, more to uh, meaningful adult uh, male role models in their lives. You know, they're now uh, connected digitally, uh, globally, and so information and knowledge is is readily available to them. And so for the first time, I think that uh, men are are starting to recognize that they have a lot of work to do to bring their gender up to the, um, uh, the, the feminist culture in America. And we need to uh, uh, achieve that balance again. And so yeah, I think that's a positive thing, and I think we're headed in that direction. Well, in, in your book... Bob, um, you talk a lot about Freemasonry. I mean, it's called the, the Freemasonry's Enduring Path to the Mature Masculine. Um, can you describe, give some examples of how Freemasonry has influenced American masculinity throughout history? Uh, the surprising thing about Freemasonry, and the thing that is uh, uh, the most misunderstood about the fraternity, is it never claims to take on... Uh, a particular cause and become the champion of that cause so that we can say, you know, the Freemasons did this and the Freemasons did that, and as a result of that, uh, things changed for the better. And the reason for that is, is that our goal in Freemasonry is the improvement of the individual himself. 
the the purpose of Freemasonry is to create a set of of social, cultural, and moral icons that literally can take a man on a journey into himself so that he can become aware of the things in his life that have worked for him, that have proven useful to him, uh, along with the experiences of his life that have damaged him and that have created problems for him, and to develop an understanding within himself that he, in fact, has to overcome himself in order to uh, make real improvement to those around him. He has to come to grips with his own father, you know, all of his, his experiences. And when he does this, then he discovers who he is. he is. He discovers that it's not always about striving to be the sports hero or building muscular bodies or buying in uh, to achieving status or fearing emotional conflict. Uh, or overachieving in jobs. Uh, all of these things that you would think are the, are the icons of masculinity actually lead men to vulnerability and feelings of powerlessness rather than fulfillment and contentment. And so what he has to do, he has to balance himself around all of these uh, things that are important uh, to his, his manly development. And in the process of doing it, he, he overcomes a, a lot of the double standards uh, which define men in our culture. And in the process of doing that, he, he, he takes on reliable mentorship. He decides that there are people out there that he can trust. Uh, he can define uh, role models in a more realistic and fulfilling way. He can attach himself to meaningful leadership models without uh, taking on the political or religious baggage that, that so often uh, accompany them. So once he does that and makes that turnaround, it's at that point that I believe he takes on an understanding of mature masculinity, and that's when he improves uh, his role in his family, he becomes a true mentor to younger men, and he gets involved in in positive ways and in uh, various community outlooks uh, outlets and he improves society in the process and so what you have to do is you have to look at well okay you know what are what are some things that freemasons then have done to to improve improve the world and in the 18th century uh, freemasonry uh, more than any other a social group that that I have studied uh, basically established uh, the models for for civil society. They broke down the class system. Uh, they created a, a new way of thinking where people could be uh, equal and 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 beloved. And so, Freemasonry, I think, uh, probably more than any any other institution played out the experiments of how one creates and lives in a democratic society, and he did it through the rubric of his lodges, uh, because the lodges were governed uh, as democratic societies. And so the experiment took place in lodge, and it was brought out of the lodge into the, into the society itself. 
So that's probably the foundational greatness that that Freemasonry uh, had. The organization itself, I have observed, has adapted itself around the popular needs of men in every generation up until the uh, Cold War era after World War II. Uh, you can go back and, and uh, you can just see how Freemasonry helped shape men's needs in almost all of these. The 19th century was a great period of, of philosophical development. Uh, that's what men enjoyed doing. And men enjoyed reading and thinking and and uh, having these philosophical dialogues, and that's when uh, a lot of the great philosophical uh, lectures came into the fraternal movement, again, within the uh, private associations of the lodges. After the, um, during the uh, period when uh, theater became a very, very important, a popular thing, uh, the rituals of Freemasonry moved onto the stage. And actually, the branch of the, of the fraternity I work in, the Scottish Rite, we, we created the uh, community theater approach to teaching uh, morals and, and ethics because theater was such a popular form of, of entertainment for men. And then at the same time, fear of eroding masculinity hit the, uh, the, the culture of men, uh, primarily uh, as a result of women, suffrage movement, and these kinds of things, and, you know, baseball and boxing and all of these kinds of uh, very masculine, uh, manly sports were established. And what did... Uh, what did the fraternity do? The fraternity created boxing leagues and, and baseball leagues in order to accommodate the enjoyment of, of men. And, and during the Depression years, the, the fraternity created these uh, world relief societies to try to take care of the, uh, the families of, of men who were within the fraternity. So, so it's been always a fraternity first, but a fraternity that responded to the interests of men. And that has been its, its fundamental strength in almost every generation. And then overlying all of that, of course, is that all of these activities and these strategies occur in private conclaves of men where three and four generations are participating in the dialogue in Lodge at the same time. So uh, we're one of the few organizations left in the world that focuses on this old uh, icon of stability in, in the male gender through connectedness and communications and conversations with multiple generations of men. So, Robert, how do you respond to people who say that, well, Okay, so Freemasonry had an important role um, in the lives of men for my grandfather, for the founding fathers, but it's no longer relevant. The, what they teach is no longer relevant. The ritual is just old-fashioned. Uh, they're not responding to men's needs today. How do you respond to that? Is, is Freemasonry still relevant to men today? Oh, absolutely. I think it's, uh, it's as relevant as ever. You know, first of all, um, again, we... We live in a, in a culture that so much clouds uh, the icons of, of masculinity uh, that 
there's hardly any place where where men can uh, can focus on those kinds of things uh, in a private and safe environment. We're never going to overcome the um, the media bashing, you know, political correctness uh, things. The the consumerism and all of that sort of stuff that's very much feminized in our culture uh, without, you know, staying together as men to try to grow ourselves to achieve balance and, and, and become positive male role models for our families and, and for our communities. Freemasonry is always about doing that. And so from that point of view, it's as important as, as it's ever been. We also live in a, in a culture that no longer uh, trusts the, the old traditions of, of religion that are so attached to you know, dogma and, and the doctrines of faith. And yet, uh, we so clearly understand how important it is for men to connect with their spiritual side and embrace the aspects of their nature that make them good men. So Freemasonry offers a way where all of these kinds of, of moral and, and virtuous characteristics can be uh, looked at in a non-doctrinal way. So it gives a person a chance to uh, develop an understanding of the nature of, of God and, and man and man's relationship to God in an environment that is not tied to, to dogma or doctrine. We have always felt like that we are kind of a partner with religion in the sense that we we deal almost totally with helping men understand the nature of, of the spirit uh, within him and how that plays out in his life to take on uh, characteristics of compassion and love and, and nurturing and, and all of the feminine kinds of things that uh, balance his more natural aggressive uh, nature. All of that is necessary for him to feel balanced in his life and then live a balanced life. So I can't think of anything more relevant to the human condition than an organization that focuses on these kinds of things. Because I know that if a man can heal himself, he can heal the world. And, and Robert, if a man wants to get involved with Freemasonry, how would he go about it? Well, it's interesting that our fraternity has never been an organization that has been membership-driven in the sense that uh, we don't advertise uh, broadly asking uh, people to join, and we we always want that to, to happen sort of in a one-on-one -on -one, uh, way. We want men to learn about the fraternity, uh, become acquainted with men in the fraternity, and uh, sort of check us out uh, through his own independent conversations with, with Masons he knows uh, before he decides to um, uh, take on the duties and obligations of, of the fraternity. So uh, the best way to become a Freemason is to, uh, is to know a friend who is one and then express uh, your interest and, and, and curiosity to him about the fraternity. If you don't know any Freemasons, you know, every uh, state organization uh, 
uh, the fraternity now essentially has a website. There's contact information. Uh, you can call the Grand Secretary of a state organization of Masons. You can tell them where you live and that you're interested in, in learning about the fraternity and, and talking with some Masons, and they will refer your name to uh, men in your community who will get in touch with you. Hmm. All right, well, Robert, before we leave, um, last question. Um, we talk, we've talked about how men have kind of lost, have gotten lost uh, off the path of the mature masculine. What are you know, three things that a man can do to reclaim that path to the mature masculine? The first thing he has to do is learn. Uh, there's nothing more important than the educated mind uh, because the thing that hurts anybody more than anything else in the world is ignorance. Uh, to make a commitment uh, to become a man of knowledge is, uh, to me, fundamental uh, to understanding uh, the role of the mature masculine soul. And secondly, um, at some point in time, uh, every man has to go deep inside himself and figure out who he really is and who he wants to become. And if he does not make that journey, he will tend to live his entire life and being totally unaware of who he is and uh, what his real gifts can be. And so I think the, um, uh, the second most important thing is, is a man has to make the search inside himself. It's so important that that be a facilitated process, uh, that it's essential uh, to taking on the mature masculine soul. And then thirdly, uh, he needs to live in a world that um, connects him on a regular basis with other men. We cannot understand uh, the mature masculine soul unless we experience a lot of men in our life. Uh, we cannot do it by ourselves. We cannot uh, be isolated and alone and, and find out for ourselves what the value uh, of men are in our culture. So I think that's um, communication, conversation, association on a regular basis uh, with men of, um, of different generations and even today in different cultures. I think it's is essential uh, to a man's self-development. So I think those three things, uh, uh, self-knowledge, inner development, and uh, communication with other men. And well, Robert, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Our guest today was Robert Davis. Robert is the Executive Secretary of the Guthrie, Oklahoma Scottish Rite and the author of the book Understanding Manhood in America, Freemasonry's Enduring Path to the Mature Masculine. And you can pick up Robert's book on Amazon.com. That wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And until next time, stay manly. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.